for us to think about. Truly, I don't think we ever could understand the depth of love that God would have for us to send his son to die that cruel death on the cross. But I sure am thankful this morning that he did. I sure am glad that he looked down through the corridors of time and knew that we would be fallen creatures in need of a great Savior. And in the first few chapters of Genesis, we see the fall and we see the promise. And I'm glad that God always keeps his promises. Amen? So this morning, before we get into our text, as is customary here at the church, we take a few moments to prepare our hearts. Hopefully you've done that well before this morning. But we want to ask God in the time of confession to search us, to forgive us, to give us ears to hear and eyes to see, soften our hearts, so that this message wouldn't be for our neighbor or the person that's not here, but it would be for us. And we would seek to glorify God with it and make application of it to ourselves. So I want to read to you this morning from the Old Testament prophet Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, and then we'll take a few minutes of silent prayer together, and then I'll lead us publicly. Micah 7, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. do rejoice that for sin abounds the grace does much more abound. We're thankful that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, we certainly need that continual grace. We're thankful that the blood of Jesus Christ not only cleanses us from sin, but continues to cleanse us. Lord, when we fail you daily, Lord, we fall short continually. We love you because you first loved us. So thank you, Lord, for showing us grace and mercy one here today that has never experienced that person, Lord, I pray that through your word and through the drawing of your spirit, they would enter into a saving relationship with Jesus and forever be changed. We thank you again for allowing us with the church to worship in and gather together. Bless the service, may it be done for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to be in the book of Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. And the title of my message may catch you off guard a little bit, may concern you a little bit, but it is really poised to you as a question, and I'll explain it more as we go. And the title of the message today is, Are You Contagious? Are you contagious? That's probably the last thing that you want to be during this season of life that we're in, correct? When we think about that word contagious, we are hopeful and desirous that we would not be contagious at all. When we go to the doctor and we've been sick and he says, you've got such and such a thing, but it's not contagious, we feel a bit of relief, don't we? When we get on an antibiotic and they tell us in 24, 48 hours you will no longer be contagious, we can go back to work, maybe we don't celebrate that part of it, but we're glad to know that we aren't 
contagious. But for the believer in Christ, we should absolutely be contagious people. But I'm afraid that all too often we look at being contagious in our lives as believers and we look at it as being contagious in some infectious disease that we try our best to not be. Or maybe if we don't try to not be, in all honesty, we're not being contagious people. I would, as we begin, before we read our text, I want to define what the dictionary says of contagious and then explain to you what I'm saying today so there's no miscommunication. The dictionary defines contagious as to transmit or spread and affect others. Obviously speaking in the context of some kind of a beautiful scene, most likely. When I ask a question today and as I speak this message, are you contagious? What I am not saying is that somehow your salvation can be caught by someone else. I'm not saying that if you just hang around unbelievers long enough and they rub elbows with you, that they're going to catch your salvation. Salvation is not something that you catch. It's something that you receive by faith. It's something that Jesus Christ provides. And so when I use the word contagious, I'm not saying in the sense that people catch our salvation. I'm speaking more of the fact of how we influence people's lives, how we impact and influence our communities, our families, our workplaces. Is there something about us that sets us apart and makes us different so that when people look at us, they see something strange. Some of us are strange naturally. I would consider myself one of those people. But when I say strange, I mean that there's something different about us as far as the way that the world is in their life that would cause people to look at us. I'm also not saying that if we are contagious, the entire world will like us and we will be loved and appreciated by the world. Obviously, again, that's not what the scriptures describe. That the gospel is offensive, and that when we shine our lights in the darkness, it does not like that. It doesn't like the light. So please understand when I speak about being contagious, I'm not saying that we will get your salvation, and I'm not saying that our efforts are ultimately to be loved and accepted by the world. Those are not my points, but I think you will see what my points are as we get into this. So with that being said, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'm going to ask if you're able, if not, please don't feel like you have to. But would you stand with us one last time? We are going to read together verses 2 through 10 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul writes here to the church of Thessalonica, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly or continually mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction and full assurance. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for our sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word of much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we have among you, 
how you turn to God from idols and to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Father, we thank you for your word today. Bless it to your glory. May you increase and I decrease. We give you thanks for what you're going to do in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul started the church in Thessalonica. He started it on his second missionary journey. If you know the story, you remember that he and Silas had plans to go one direction. The Holy Spirit hindered them. And he hears what is known as the Macedonian call, the Macedonian cry. Paul, come over here and help us. And so he changes course and he sails to Macedonia and he begins to minister in that area, which would encapsulate Greece and some of that southern part, and northern part of that area. And it's on his second missionary journey, as I said, that he goes into this region. He plants a church. He's not there very long, and he encounters, as is usually the case, opposition. Because it's a Roman province, it's controlled, they have a lot of freedom in Thessalonica, but there are still pro councils that are overseers, if you will. And Paul begins to preach this message of Christ, and immediately there is talk of an insurrection because he is preaching that there is another Lord. Caesar is supposed to be Lord. And he's proclaiming this message that this dead Messiah named Jesus is Lord. And so, as always is the case, it riles up people. Riles up the Jews. You can read about this in Acts 17, by the way, if you want to go back and get the history of how the church started and the persecution they were facing. You can read that in the beginning of Acts 17. But nonetheless, he doesn't get to spend much time in Thessalonica as he is led away from there to Berea next. And Paul is concerned with his young church. They're facing a lot of persecution. He gets to Corinth and he writes this letter, which is probably Paul's first letter. I know it's not first in the organization and we've talked a lot about how the Bible is ordered uh, and how it got that way. But 1 Thessalonians is probably Paul's first letter. Probably wrote it around 58. And so it's a very early writing to a church that he started. So I want you to understand his heart and where he's coming from here. And I want us to see the example of this early church. And I want us to think about how we could model that as a church and how we should model that as believers. And so that's why I titled this message, Are You Contagious? Because Paul was exhorting the church at Thessalonica, and he was commending the church at Thessalonica, because they were a contagious church. They were making an impact on people in their community, in their area, in their region, with their words and with their life. And so I want you to see with me today, I'm going I'm to go the old... Uh, after Vincent did it last week, I thought I'd follow up and try to try to trump you a little bit. Vincent, I've got nine points. Anyway, <laughs> like that. So I'm going to deviate from the traditional Baptist three-point sermon to the nine-point sermon, but I promise it'll be quick. And also, in the spirit of, of Vincent's motivation last week, I also am going to have every single point start the same way. So how about that? Now I'm easy to have all the same way. So thought I'd pick on Vincent a little bit. Uh, he did a fantastic job last week, by the way. Again, thank you, Vincent, for your obedience, and thank you for challenging us with that work. But I'm going to give you some points here this morning that I hope you can see from this text and that you can take with you today from the church in Thessalonica. So let's look at our verses today together, beginning 
at verse 2, and we see that Paul immediately begins with a grateful heart. He says that he is thankful for that church, for those people. And he constantly or un, he unceasingly prays for them. And that's my first point, that contagious Christians ought to be grateful people. Contagious Christians ought to be grateful people. He thanks God for what's happening in their lives and what he sees and hears is taking place with them. And he continues to pray that that persistence and that endurance continues to be reflective in their lives. There was a story of a father, and every night his wife would fix dinner, and she would set the food down on the table, and he would always have some complaint about it. He'd always have something to grumble about. The steak's too done, macaroni's too cold, too salty, it's not salty enough. Whatever it was, he always found a complaint. And then when he got done complaining, he would ask his wife and child to bow their heads and say, Grace. And so one evening, as normal, food came out, he complained, just bow our heads and give thanks. And when he got finished, his little girl looked at it and she said, Daddy, does God hear our prayers? And he said, Yes, dear, he certainly does. And she said, Daddy, does God hear everything else we say too? He said, Absolutely, he sure does. He started to feel kind of proud about himself that his example had shown her. There is a God in the universe. But then she said something else and it kind of burst his bubble. He said, Well, Daddy, God hears our prayers. God hears everything else we say. Which one does he believe? Think about that for a minute. Does our prayer life, or maybe our life in here for an hour on Sunday, look the same as the rest of our life? Is how we talk and how we act and what we think in here look a little different than when we get out of here. Paul was grateful because these folks lived a consistent life. They didn't just make a difference in the synagogue on Sabbath. They were making a difference every day of their lives. And that attitude was contagious. When you are thankful for people, when you encourage people, when you pray for people, that's infectious. It's an infectious attitude. I work in a place, and I love the job. Maybe you've seen this before. So a lot of folks get to the I like to get there early. I hate being late, so I try to get there early. And if you got there early, the place that you would hang out in the morning was the break room. Don't ever go to the break room. Can I, can I give you some advice? from somebody that worked in the secular field for a long time. If you're having a good day and you get to work and you're having a good day, avoid the break room. Amen? Avoid the break room. Because what happens in the break room is all the grouchy, unhappy, miserable people that don't like mornings and don't like life go to the break room and tell you everything bad that's going to happen that day. Everything bad that's going to happen. Boss is an idiot. I bet you not, you know what he's going to do today? And he'll proceed to tell you what he's going to do. And I mean, it just drains you. You came to work, had a great day, and five minutes in the break room, your day was ruined. Right? Because being around miserable people will infect you. But being around grateful people will too. Be a grateful person. 
Make a difference. Change the atmosphere. I talked to you before about being a thermostat or being a thermometer. Thermometers just take the temperature. They tell you everything that's wrong, but they don't fix anything. Thermostats can gauge the temperature, but they can adjust it too. Be somebody that changes the temperature. Let your light shine and make a difference. You know? They're either going to, they're either going to be drawn to you or they're going to run from you. But either way, you're going to change the environment. They were a grateful people. Number two, Contagious Christians are a giving people. Look at verse 3. Paul says, I remember, as I pray, I remember before our God and Father for this three things. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read this to you from another translation that I think really brings out the emphasis of what Paul's saying. Listen to verse 3 again from, from this translation. For we remember before our God and Father how you Number one, put your faith into practice. Number two, how your love made you work so hard. Number three, how your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ is He says in the ESV translation that I use, your work of faith. That word work, it really means what you're occupied with. What is the overall preoccupation of your life? For Paul and for the church at Thessalonica, their first priority was Christ. The consuming part of their life was focused around Jesus. But they didn't keep that to themselves. The relationship with Christ that they had made them want to be contagious to others. And they were giving people in the sense that they shared their faith. He says, you put your faith into practice. Faith without works is dead. We don't save to salvation, but we work from salvation, you see. And so, because they were genuine believers, they put their faith into practice. And it says in that other translation, the Good News translation, which I don't normally use, but I just like how it brought this out. How your love made you work so hard. The idea of that word there, how it made you work so hard, is literally to beat your breast in agony. Like you are laboring strenuously, even under pressure. But why? Why would you endure? Why would you throw up your hands and quit when things get tough in your church? When things are hard serving God, when it doesn't make any sense and you don't know where you're going or what God is doing, why do you keep on going? Why do you press on? Because of the love that you have and the love that you've experienced from God. I was out doing some errands yesterday and I came past Mad Mike's on the corner there and there were some girls outside with signs selling Girl Scout cookies. And they were wrapped up like mummies, because it was cold out there yesterday. I mean, all you could see was the eyes and the signs. And, and in the middle of these cute little kids holding up the signs for the Girl Scout cookies was what I assumed was their mom. And she was wrapped up like a mummy, too. And I thought, man, you know, the things we'll do for our kids. Right? I mean, let's be honest. If it's sprinkling out, us Baptists don't believe in sprinkling. You won't come to church. It's sprinkling. 
So we'll stand outside in the Arctic blast, holding up signs in front of bad bikes to sell cookies because we love our kids and we do anything for our kids. But I'm not trying to change you, I'm just trying to be honest. If I said yesterday we were going to stand on the corner and Matt Mike's and hold up signs that said Jesus loves you, now we have a lot of people We do because we love. And what we love will occupy our hearts and our attention. And that's what the church in Thessalonica was doing. They were working out of the abundance of the love that they had for Jesus and for other people. He says, and how your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ is firm or it's constant. They had a hope. Church, we have a hope today. We shouldn't walk around all the time acting like the fear is no hope. We just don't know what to do. We have the greatest hope of any people on earth. We do. We do. I understand that times are difficult. I understand that things are chaotic. But that's not anything new. Have you read the Bible? Chaos and evil and turmoil abounds. Sometimes we just look at everything through 21st century Western eyes and we just picture it as this is, this is all, this is just terrible, and the Bible is all about us, and it's not. The Bible is the universal story of humanity's depravity, not just America in 2021. This is the story of fallen creatures all through time that need a Savior and have had one provided in the person of Jesus Christ. If you trust in him, my friends, you have hope that this world is the worst that it's ever going to be for you. That what's waiting for you is so much more glorious than this. That it pales in comparison. We have a hope. And that hope ought to cause us to be a giving people. It ought to cause us to want to invest our time and our talents and our treasures in storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven. And that's what the church in Thessalonica was doing. Number three. Contagious Christians are a glorifying people. Look at verse 4. He says, for we know, Paul says, we know, brothers, that you are loved by God and that he has chosen you. Now, it's important sometimes when we read the scriptures, and I've talked about this many times, they were not originally written with chapters and verses. These are letters that were written out just as a letter. I don't think any of us break our letters into verses and chapters. They're helpful. They were added in the 16th century to help us. Sometimes they are helpful. Other times they may be a bit of a hindrance. And I think sometimes if we remove the verses and just read it and let it flow as a letter, it makes more sense. Because if we're reading it that way, really verses 4, 5, and 6 all together give us a full picture of what is going on here in, the, in that in verse 4 and also in the entire section that we're looking at. Their lives bore witness to this. Because look at the progression of thought. How does verse 4 begin? For we know. We know what? That you are loved by God and part of his elect. Okay? We know that. How do we know that? Look at verse 5. How does that begin? Because we know these things. Now he's going to give you the reason in verse 5. For why he knows these things. They are, in this verse, a glorifying people because people know and recognize that they are loved by God and that they are chosen as his elect. Should I put these back? Verse 5 tells us 
and will show us that not only are contagious Christians a glorifying people, they're a growing people. He knows these things because, verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. I think a better translation there is full assurance. And he brings out the idea of what he's saying better. It's in the literal translation. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. We talk about this in our Sunday school lesson today, and it just so happens that it comes up again in this verse. There is a translation called Young's Literal Translation. It's not one that probably many of you use, but it is in fact what it says. It's a very literal translation of the Greek and English. And that verse is translated, that portion of that verse is, you have known of what sort we became among you. It's a word, genomag. And it pictures something that is gradually progressing until it comes to fruition. When we look at verse six or verse five, I'm sorry, we see that our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power with full assurance. And you know what kind of men we proved to be, what kind of men we became and were becoming in front of you. It was evident that they were loved by God and chosen by Him because as they examined their lives, as the Thessalonians examined the lives of Paul and Silas. They saw it worked out day by day. They set an example for these people. Contagious Christians glorify God and they are growing in front of people. Sanctification is a process that the Holy Spirit does in our lives as believers. But sanctification, while it begins on the inside, will always be evident on the outside. You can't be becoming more like Christ and people not notice that. You ever think about that? If you're maturing and conforming to the image of Christ, that's going to show up in how you live. Like, people shouldn't find out that you've been saved for 20 years and be shocked. You're a Christian? You go to church? Like, if you get that look, you go to church, what? There's a problem. There's a problem. That shouldn't be the problem. They should know that by the way that you live and act and talk. Contagious Christians are a growing people. Contagious Christians are a guided people. Look at verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word. Now this may sound like a contradiction. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the word in much affliction and much tribulation. Pastor Michael has talked about this word at length. Eclipses. Right? Tribulation. Not the great tribulation, which we talk a lot about in eschatology and end time stuff. This is a pressing, a pressure being exerted. The church in Thessalonica was facing persecution. They were afflicted. It wasn't easy for them. But they had joy of the Holy Spirit. I want to spend a little bit more time on this point because I think that this is a big stumbling block for a lot of people, and I pray that this helps you today if you really think about this. What does the Bible say that the fruit of the Spirit is? When we think about that text, love, joy, 
joy, peace, patience, and so on. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Paul says in verse uh, 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That word imitator is where we get our English word mime. Uh, you ever seen a mime? You know, all the time that copies you. That's the idea that Paul is saying. You mimicked us. You copied us. More than that, you copied the Lord Jesus Christ. If ever there was a person that we could look to that faced affliction, yet always kept joy in his heart, it would be Jesus. If ever anybody had a reason to throw in the towel and get discouraged and quit because of outward circumstances, it would have been Jesus. When he prayed, Father, it would be your will that this cup pass Right? And he could have easily said, you know what, this isn't worth These folks don't, don't care, they don't appreciate what they're doing. They're all going to leave here in a minute and run off. They're sleeping right now while I'm praying. I'm done with some mess. You know, that's what I would have done. I'm going to be honest. Don't ever look to your pastor as your savior. Because we wouldn't want to cross with him. I'm just being honest. He probably wouldn't have crossed with us. And we don't like pain and discomfort. And if I Pour my heart out and came out and found you sleeping under the tree. I probably would have done that. You know, right? We're in church. We're not the lie in church. So, regardless, Jesus, Jesus endured. And he endured, number one, to be obedient to the Father, but number two, because of his great love for his creatures. He endured. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, talking about this great cloud of witness, the witnesses that we have as a testimony. He says, looking to Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, persevered, literally he didn't flee from the cross, despising the shame that is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Externally there was tribulation. In the garden, he sweated for great drops of blood. He knew the agony and the torment that he was getting ready to face. He knew what it was going to be like to wait for the weight of the sin of the world to be on him and the Father to pour out his wrath upon his Son for us. That wasn't a pleasant experience that he was looking forward to. But he endured it because the joy that was set before him was greater than what this temporary Trials. How do we live our lives in the face of adversity? Do we fall apart? Or is our lives guided so much by the Word of God and the Spirit of God that while we don't enjoy the trials, we have, just like the church in Thessalonica, a hope. A hope that grounds us. A hope that allows us to enjoy something here. Maybe we're falling apart out here. See? Christians live in the odd experience of living between two worlds. Physically here, but our home is in heaven. We feel the struggle of that. We feel the struggle of that. We feel the pressure of that. We feel the pull of that. The world's pulling one way. Our home is in heaven. The spirit is gone. That drive Those things come in conflict with one another quite a bit. But think about this. If someone is blind and they need a dog to help them get around, what do we call those dogs? 
Seeing eye dogs. Seeing eye dogs or guide dogs. You know what we don't call them? Pets. Guidance dogs. There's a difference. They are guide dogs, not guidance dogs. Because if you're blind, you don't need a dog to just simply sit there and bark when there's a hole in the ground that they don't want you to fall in, or bark if there's a car coming. The dog is trying to lead you. It'll stop when you need to stop. It'll go left when you need to go left. It'll go right when you need to go right. They're not guidance dogs. They are guide dogs. We don't have someone that just is guiding us. We have a guide. We have a shepherd. Isn't our one of our favorite psalms, Psalm 23? He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. Doesn't say he gives me advice on how I ought to walk on that path. He leads us. People say all the time, I've said it before when I was young. God will never leave you if you can leave him. I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe if you're a child of God that you can ever leave him. I certainly don't believe you can leave eternal security, eternal salvation. We don't lose our salvation. But there's this idea that, you know, God's over here and we're close to him and we start doing this and all of a sudden we got way over here and God's still over there. No, he's not. I don't care where you go, according to Psalms, in Psalm 139, verse 7, he asked a rhetorical question, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? And then he proceeds to say, if I ascend to heaven, if I descend here, if I go to east, west, wherever I go, you're there. You can't get away from God. You may feel the effects of not being in his will, but being out of the presence of God, no. You can't be out of the presence of an omnipresent God. You're always in his presence. And why is that important? Because God doesn't sit at a distance and shout instructions at us. He takes us by the hand and leads us. Do you see the difference? In Psalm 73, 23, Asaph, who wrote that psalm, says, Nevertheless, I am speaking for God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Now listen to what he says of God. You, God, hold my right hand. Who is holding on to who? Are you awake out there? Who's holding on to who? God is holding my right hand. He's holding on to us. He's guiding us. He's leading us. Why does that matter? Because that's not how we pray. That's not how we pray. And if that's not how we pray, that's not how we believe. Listen to this. Think about this. We pray, God, show me what you want me to do. God, give me some evidence. I don't know what you want. Make it clear to me. I'm going to put my fleece down like Gideon and show me. How about this? How about when we pray, we say, God, take me where you want me. 
That's a lot scarier. When we say, God, tell me what you want me to do. You know why that's an easy prayer? Because it leaves the decision with us. God, present to me what you think I ought to do. But I will be the final arbiter and judge of whether or not I want to do that. But when you pray like Jesus prayed, not my will but thine be done, that's scary. Because you're saying, God, I'm going to move out of the driver's seat, and I'm going to sit in the passenger seat, and wherever we go, I'm convinced that's the right place. You see the difference? Do you see why we pray? Show me. God, tell me. Make it clear to me. Because then we still got some room to find an exit. When we buckle in, you ever, did my life riding rides at King's Island? Big scary roller coasters? Buddy, when that thing comes down and clamps over your chest, you're in. <laughs> There's no eject button, is there? You're in that stuff. And if you get on the beast or whatever they got out there now, I don't ride those things. I don't know. I'm going to King's Island. I got my fly irons when the Lord comes. I don't do roller coasters. But once that thing locks you in, you're you pray, Lord, I will not mind, but I will be done. And he says, okay, buckle up. You're going where he's taking you. Do you trust him enough to believe that no matter how he gets you there, what path he takes, what route you go, that he is going to get you where he needs you to be? Do you trust him to drive? Friend? Do you trust him with that? Because God isn't interested in just telling you the way. He's interested in taking you the way. He said, I am... The way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. There's one way to salvation, and that's Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. There's one way to live for Jesus, and that is to surrender your life to him and say, take me where you want to take me. I didn't sign up to be a preacher. I, I did not go to my high school guidance counselor and say, what do I need to do to be a pastor? Because that's really what I want to do. There was nowhere on my radar. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't read my Bible, and I certainly didn't want to do this. this the thought of speaking to people petrified me. I still don't really like it. I might be surprised because I can't shut up most of the time. But I don't like standing in front of people and talking. And so this was not what I chose. When I got saved, Jesus bought me. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He purchased me. If you're saved, he purchased you. If you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. If you want to live for Jesus, that means that Jesus is Lord and Master of your life. He is King of Kings over your life. He is Sovereign over your life. He may take you places that you don't like. You may go through experiences that are very uncomfortable. You may be convinced that he has lost his mind and does not know what he's doing. But when you come to your senses and realize that you are a finite creature made from the dust, and he is an eternal, majestic, all-knowing God, he's not going to let you down. He's going to take you and use you exactly as he sees fit for his glory. Trust him. Trust him with that. Number six, contagious Christians are game-changing people. Why do I say that with verse seven? So that you became an example to all the believers. You became an example. That word example is tupas. It means to leave a mark or an imprint. The Romans, for example, wore a, the Caesars and the kings wore a signet ring. And when we read about them in Revelation 5, the scroll, they would 
leave that mark on the seals or maybe on the grave of Jesus even. They imprint that with the Roman rule and authority, a mark of rule. They're making a difference. The only imprint some Christians leave is their tush mark on the seat where they sat for an hour. I'm sorry. Are you making an imprint, an impact beyond just sitting in a seat? Are you making a difference on people? Are you contagious? Are you influencing them? Number seven, verse eight. Contagious Christians are gospel-proclaiming people. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. We don't need to brag on you. Because you guys go out and you walk the walk and you talk the talk. You preach the gospel. It's amazing that we go to a church named Caruso, which literally means to proclaim the good news, and yet we have a lot of people that never do that. That is one of the foundational beliefs and reasons why Caruso exists, to make Christ known to the nations, to proclaim his name in our city and beyond. It's something that we're supposed to do, regardless of if you go to Caruso or not. We are great commission sent people to proclaim the message that men are sinners, condemned and lost, but Jesus is a Savior for all of humanity, to those that will believe. That's the message. Look at John 1, 40 and 41. Look at how this works. One of the two who heard John, John the Baptist, speak and then followed Jesus was Andrew which was Simon Peter's brother. And then he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. One person heard about Jesus, and he went and had to go tell somebody else about Jesus. That's how, you ever get those annoying chain emails in your, in your inbox? If you ever send me one of them, I apologize, but it dies there. <laughs> It'll never go any farther. Right? The gospel shouldn't be that way. If I get saved and I go tell Ben about Jesus and Ben gets saved and he tells Brian about Jesus and Brian tells Shane about Jesus, that's how it ought to be. But if Brian gets saved and Brian decides, see, I'm a big tough guy with tattoos. What will they think about me if I, if I get up there and start talking about Jesus? I'm just going to keep it to myself. It's like that chain email. It stops. It doesn't go anywhere. I'm not to say the guy can't use somebody else, but he wants to use you. But don't let it stop with you. The gospel multiplied in the early church because contagious Christians are gospel-proclaiming people. Number eight, they are grieving people. Look at verse nine. We're almost done. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There was a testimony. People heard the report. Of what was going on. What were they hearing about? The faith and the love and the proclamation. Yeah, they were hearing about that, but they saw something else. These pagans had turned from idols to the living God. What do we call it when someone turns to God? Repentance. There was a story of a teacher that had a little student. It wasn't little Johnny, like it usually is little Johnny and all those kinds of stories. This was little Jimmy. And little Jimmy had trouble pronouncing the letter R. So his teacher gave him a sentence to practice at home. Here was the sentence. 
Robert gave Richard a rap in the rib for roasting the rabbit so rare. He was to go home and practice that until he get his R's down. Some days later, the teacher came to little Jimmy and asked him to say the sentence for her. And Jimmy rattled it off like this. Bob gave Dick a poke in the side for not cooking the bunny enough. <laughs> you see, little Jimmy found a way to avoid all the R words. But we as Christians find a way to avoid the R word too, and that is repentance. We find a way around that. We call it something else. We call our sins, habits, problems, mistakes. And if it's just that, why do we need to repent of it? But if we're honest about the things in our life that displease God, and if we're honest about the things in our life that are disobedient towards God, the answer is repentance. It's always the answer. Last point. Contagious Christians are a gripped people. Number 10. They were waiting for his son from heaven. He raised him from the dead and delivered us from the wrath of God. They were waiting. They were expectant. They were eager. 2 Peter 3.11 says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in life of holiness and godliness? What sort of people ought we to be? We talk about these kinds of things all the time. Lord's coming back. He's coming back. Praise God. Let me ask you a question then. If you really believe that, how does it affect your life? It has to. If you believe that the Lord is coming back very soon, how can that not affect your life? But yet we go day in and day out as though we've got all the time in the world, that there's no urgency, that there's no dedication. It doesn't make sense. Because it doesn't really believe that. Listen to what Warren Wearsby said. He said, a local church that truly lives in the expectation of seeing Jesus Christ at any time will be a vibrant and victorious group of people. I'll let you decide if you personally, and this church and other churches you may have been to, would be categorized as vibrant and victorious. Expecting the Lord's return is a great motivation for soul winning and Christian stability. It is a wonderful comfort in sorrow, a great encouragement for godly living. It is tragic when churches forget this wonderful doctrine. It is even more tragic when churches believe it and preach it, but do not practice it. Are you compelling people with your life, or are you grieved on That's a question that I want to ask you today. Are you a contagious Christian? If attitudes are contagious, would you want your kids to catch your attitude? Would you want your neighbors, co-workers, and friends and family to catch your attitude? The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 21, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. It's a good thing to aim for every day. Please God and live honorable for others. It starts, my friends, with repentance and faith in Christ. I'm preaching to you today to live your best life now and please God with your good work so when you die, he'll let you in his kingdom. Because if you try to make it that way, I've got news for you. You will hear depart from me. I never knew you. The only way, as Jesus said, is through the Son. And the only way to come is as a sinner in need of salvation to the one that died on the cross to pay that debt for you. It's as simple as that, but it's as exclusive as that. One way. One way. All may come, 
information is available to all, but limited availability. Let me ask you this in my closing. Are you saved today? You're watching online. Are you saved? You have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If not, walk in. Why not? Why don't you? If he's offering freely the gift of eternal life, and you say, I don't have that. Why? Why don't you? Are you a contagious Christian? Are you living for Christ? Are you making an impact? Are you guided by him? Do you trust him enough to say, Lord, I don't need no directions. I don't need no instructions. I'm going to scoot on over in the passenger seat, buckle in, and say, I trust that you'll go when we need to go. I trust you. And are you making a difference in people's lives? If you're not, my, my same question stands. Why not? Decisions can be made this morning. Or you can stay in your rut, you can stay in your unbelief, you can stay in your sin. And you can be a contagious Christian. Father, we thank you this morning for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you give us an opportunity. Lord, as we stand and as we sing together, it's my prayer that you are already drawing people to you. Christians, that you know by name, who don't proclaim your name. Lord, help us, forgive us, break us, deliver us. If there's one here that's lost, today, one that's watching online, Show them the urgency of the decision. Show them the great salvation that's available. We pray and ask.